Hey everyone, this is Pastor Jonathan. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in and listening to our sermon from Connection Church in Lead. And I wanted to encourage you, while listening to a sermon online can be very helpful and edifying, and we do appreciate you listening, if you're not connected into a local body of believers, I would encourage you to do so. We, we are commanded not to neglect the gathering together. So find a gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church where you can submit to the elders and fellowship there. If you don't have a church home and you are in the Leeds, South Dakota area, feel free to join us. We would love to come have you join us and worship with us. With that said, thank you and enjoy the sermon. This morning, uh, we're going to go through one of my favorite biblical narrative pieces. Um, I'm going to probably end up skipping a couple things as we go through, but if you're going to follow along with me, uh, we'll be in the book of 1 Samuel, and I'll be reading from chapters 4 through 6 this morning, and if that seems like a lot, it's like 90 verses less than Jonathan did three weeks ago, so uh, it's still not that that much, Um, but this is a passage that... uh, you know, over a decade ago when we were getting out of the Navy and God was clearly calling us to a church, I was like, I'm going to preach through First Samuel right away. And mostly because of this passage, I want to do it. And then I never did it. And so this is kind of a nice moment of feeling like I'm accomplishing something I've wanted to do for a long time. So First Samuel 4 through 6. So pardon me if you're following along and I skip a verse here and there. I, uh, it's not intentional, I promise. And, uh, uh, but when I was put, compiling this together, I, I really feel like, especially because it's, it makes sense because it's three chapters, but there's like six sermons in here. And I'm really trying to just preach one. So even the first half of the first verse in chapter four kind of makes me go, oh, well, I need to explain this, and that's going to take a half an hour. So I even went back and forth on whether to even read every verse. Um, So some places I'm sure I left verses out of my screen. So just forgive me, bear with me. I promise it won't change the total meaning of the text. And I'm not doing it on purpose. So, thus the word of Samuel came out to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped in Aphek. And the Philistines arranged themselves to meet Israel. Then the battle spread, and Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Then the people came into the camp, and the elders of Israel said, Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh. And from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of hosts, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And it happened that as the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth was thrown into confusion. Then the Philistines heard the noise of the shout and said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they knew that the Ark of Yahweh had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come, up into, has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. 
Be strong and become men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, become men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Then the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, and behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of Yahweh. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But they arose early the next morning, and behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of Yahweh. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now the hand of Yahweh was glorious against the Ashdodites, and he made them desolate and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. Thus the men of Ashdod saw that it was so and said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered the lords of the Philistines to them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And they brought the ark of the God of Israel around. Now it happened after they brought it around that the hand of Yahweh was against the city with with very great confusion. And he struck the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke, broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of God of Israel around to us to put us and our people to death. They sent, therefore, and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not put us and our people to death. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very glorious there. Now the men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now the ark of Yahweh had been in the fields of the Philistines seven months. And the the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of Yahweh? Make us know how we shall send it to its place. So they said, If you send the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but you shall surely return to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not turned away from you. Then they said, What shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to him? And they said, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For one plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you shall make the likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that bring the land to ruin, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you, your gods, and your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he had abused them, did they not allow the people to go and they went? So now take and make a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never been a yoke and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of Yahweh and place it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you return to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side. Then send it away that it may go. See if it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh. Then he has done this great evil. But if not... Then we will know that it was not his hand that smote us. It happened to us by chance. Then the men did so and took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. 
And they put the ark of Yahweh on the cart, as well as the box with the golden mice and the likenesses of their tumors. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh, and they went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were, re- were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. So first, I have some observations about what we've just read. Um, I am the weirdo. It's a weird story, and it is like my favorite story. So first of all, Israel, in their first defeat, They ask a question, and it is the right question. They attribute their very defeat to God was not with us today. Well, why? Why wasn't God with us today? But then it's interesting because they don't really wait for an answer. And one of the six sermons I could preach right now is God has already given them the answer. That's the first half of that first verse, the word of Samuel, because what Samuel has gotten from God in the previous passages is Eli and his sons are not honoring me. This is a problem. And the way this passage plays out, you see clearly that that is what God is taking care of first. Different sermon. So they do come up with a solution that involves bringing God into the fight, but involves bringing God into the fight on their terms. Not let's consult God and see what he wants us to do. Not let's pray about it and let's see where we go. Someone go get the ark because when we have the ark, we always win. Just go get it. And that will kind of mirror the sins that are committed by Eli's sons. Um, And it's interesting to note that Eli's sons are the ones who help carry the ark out. And so Israel shows this great joy when the ark comes into battle. But this is not necessarily to be seen as a reverent act. This uh, This isn't them really glorifying God. This is glorifying their great idea. Because we've taken God in. We've got, we've got our token. We've got our, our get-out-of-jail-free pass. Um, you know, if we talked about this kind of an attitude today in modern Christians, we would call it fire insurance. I prayed the prayer, and now I know I'm not going to hell, and I can do whatever I want. It's kind of the same attitude. Is we've got God on our side now. It's all going to be good, but we're not really honoring him. We're just going to win. And so then you see the Philistines, who are also noticing this happen, who have almost what seems like a better understanding of what's going on in some ways. Not really, we'll find out, but they realize that if they've brought the ark in, this is trouble for us. And that actually leads them to rally one another to the cause, to fight harder, and actually show a little more respect to the God of Israel in this battle than the Israelites themselves are. So the result is, that God hands the Israelites over to the Philistines and the Philistines capture the ark. And while the Philistines may have by default honored God more in battle, they still really show a lack of full understanding of what's going on. They still believe in their multiple gods. They still believe that this is just one more God to add to their collection. And so they put the ark with their idol of Dagon to put the Israelite God into being subject to their God. So once, just like the Israelites, the Philistines are viewing this ark as this really nice convenient thing, this wonderful tool we now have in our toolbox. And, you know, look how great we are because we defeated the Israelites and their God. 
And if the Philistines had seen modern movies, they would have watched this scene and gone, oh no, he meant to get caught. (laughs) This isn't going to be good for them. But, and it doesn't go well. First, God systematically destroys the idol to their false god. And it's it's a humorous picture that we get. And then, the longer they attempt to subjugate God to their God, the worse it gets. Tumors and plagues of mice come. They all get tumors. Their crops are destroyed. Word spreads. They keep just passing the thing around. And by the time it gets to Ekron, they're like, don't bring it here. What are you doing? Do you hate us? You're going to kill us. The Israelite God is a death sentence. Don't bring that here. And so even with that display of power that God shows... And they do show a fairly well-developed knowledge of Israel's history. They, they liken it back to Egypt. Remember what happened to the Israelites when they were in Egypt? That's what's going to happen to us. We've got to get this thing out of here. So they've got an understanding, but they still don't quite get it. Because the response then is, yeah, let's get rid of it, but let's really work hard to see if this was really the God of the Israelites or if this is all just a big coincidence. So they don't just put it on a cart and send it off. They choose milk cows that, don't ever, that have never been under a yoke. They separate them from their calves, which, so the cows don't want to leave. They, they just send it off on its way, like no direction, no, nobody guiding it. They're just like, just, just go because we really want to prove that this wasn't a real thing, that, God doesn't, that their God doesn't exist. Um, and so at last the ark is returned and ultimately there is no one left in this story who can take any glory for themselves. Only God. You have a defeated Israel, albeit at the end, a hopeful Israel with the return of the ark and a humiliated Philistine nation. So with those points in mind, What do we as a church take away from this passage and how do we respond to what's been presented here? So if you've been around me and everyone here has, like preparing in hopes that there's going to be more than like 10 of us, but it's cool. Um, You've heard one or both of us say something to the effect when we're talking about the Old Testament, especially you are not David. And we say it kind of tongue in cheek, but it's a quote from Matt Chandler a sermon he gave a little over a decade ago where he addresses this thing that many of us have heard and we've heard it in other stories too, but this is the famous one that when you're reading the story of David and Goliath, you know, you're the David and those Goliaths in your life, you've just got to go out there and knock them down with a stone. And Chandler's point is if we're anyone in that story, we're the scared and helpless Israelites on the hill behind David and David is more a picture of Christ saving us where we could never save ourselves. That's a common way of looking at scripture. It's important to not make that the only way we look at scripture. It's important to keep full context in mind or we get in some dangerous territory with allegories and stuff. But, but it is a common way that we look at some of these stories to look at ourselves within the biblical narrative in an allegorical way, specifically to illustrate our relationship to God and our relationship to the gospel. So, if we are to play this game in this story, who are we in this narrative? We are the Israelites, and we're the Philistines, and we're probably the broken idol, and we're quite possibly the cows. (laughs) 
And my point's on the first two. Uh, We get zero glory in this game. Like the Israelites, we are prone to try to have a God of pure convenience. We come to God when it is convenient. We prioritize our faith life at our convenience. And that's disordered. It is we who take our very breath at God's behest. It is we who are the convenience to him. God is an independent and unyielding force. We are dependent on him for everything. Yet we tend to treat him and his word as things for consideration only. We who call ourselves followers of Christ have been uh, shaped by our culture to put very little priority on what Christ holds dear. And then like the Philistines, we wish to subjugate, subjugate, I wrote that word so many times and now I can't say it. We wish to subjugate God to our culture. And it's not really that different from what the Israelites are doing. It's really coming down to what's convenient. In this way, the, the Philistines and the Israelites are really guilty of the same thing. And we all exhibit this type of behavior. We all share the same struggle. We choose ourselves time and time again in spite of the fact that we have the revealed word of God in front of us explaining to us that this is the one true and holy God. And we have a historical account such as this one that we've read today that shows a God who's not messing around with the unrighteous. With the unrighteous. A God who will not be beholden to anyone, including his own people. A God who will punish the sin, not only of those who oppose him, but of those who call him friend. And we take that knowledge and we rejoice in it on a Sunday during service. And then we tend to go about our lives as if the Lord of all creation has no impact on the rest of our lives. And that's a hyperbolic statement. That's, that's me being a little hard on the thought. I'm sure that any of us can think of, uh, think of places where we do fail in our faith. But we can also play, think of things that we do, you know, just specifically because God's commanded it. You know, there are things I'm sure all of us do that are good, that are meant to honor God, that are great. But, you know, atheists do nice things too. So what separates our good deeds from other people's? It's not enough for part of our life or most of our life to be in submission to God. We really need to be in total submission. And please know before I go much further... I didn't know who would be here this morning. I didn't know what we would have. I think it's a little ironic for some of my points coming up that we really have like a fraction of our normal crowd. I'm not saying any of this to have a specific conversation or to call any specific people out. I'm preaching this from a place as a man under conviction. Um, And as that, my examples here are about me as the bad example. Um, so, because I think, and I talked with Jonathan about this a lot this week, this can really sound like a, Sarah, you need to do better kind of sermon. And really, I'm only angry at Jonathan. So, so for example, I have never been dogmatic about church attendance. There are real legitimate reasons a person is going to miss church, miss a church function, we should want to be amongst God's people. That's, we're told that in scripture. But we aren't all expected to be at church every time the doors are open just because the doors are open. But in myself, I have noticed this drift. And a few weeks ago, it kind of all hit home. I did my part 
running that marathon relay, which is not meant for fat old guys. And I thought, it's fine that I did this, but this is a Sunday thing that I didn't have to do, and I'm in pain now, and I didn't go to church. Why did I prioritize this over, over going to church? And it probably wouldn't have stuck out so much, but recently, I've missed church quite a bit for a lot of reasons. Uh, we attended with my parents on Easter, then there was a snowstorm, then we were out of town, then we were back for two weeks, and then we were out of town again, and then there was the marathon thing, and then one week in church, and then I was out of town again. That's three Sundays in eight weeks. Add to that the Sundays over the past year where I've missed for other reasons, work, other commitments, uh, not, maybe just not feeling the best when I woke up that morning, and suddenly all of my legitimate reasons for me start to feel a whole lot less legitimate. And I look back on those weeks and realize that I've missed a lot of church. I've missed corporate worship of God and fellowship with the saints. I found myself coming when it's convenient. And I dare say convenient is a prerequisite for many of us. And yet, with that attitude, like the Israelites, we expect God to carry our church into battle as we evangelize our community. And that's disordered. Another example. I try to fast weekly. I say try because I often fail to fast weekly. For starters, it's really easy to wake up and just down a bowl of cereal. Or like if you've ever had fasting labs and you have to put a note on your coffee maker, don't drink the coffee. I'm that guy because I'll just drink the coffee and not think about it. But then go read Isaiah 58 and you're going to find that fasting is so much more than not eating. And frankly, it is not always possible for me, a sinner, to get my heart in the right place. But a couple weeks ago, I was there. I was focused. I was with God. I was fasting. And at the end of the day, I was praying and I determined this is going to be a two-day fast. I'm going another day. Then I remember that I have a lunch meeting at someone's house the next day. And my first thought is, well, never mind. Not going to fast tomorrow. And conviction came really quick. Because I'm ready to break this fast, a commitment that I have made to God over the possible discomfort of turning down food at someone's house. And I know that if I had this conversation individually, a lot of people would just say, with all the best intentions, well, you don't want to seem rude and you don't want to make things uncomfortable. I get it. But I don't, shouldn't need to go on about how backwards that line of thinking is. Yes, God, I will put my whole life on hold for you unless it gets difficult or something else comes up. And that's what we all tend to do. We fail over and over again to view God as more than a matter of convenience. We lack the awe that should be inspired by a deity so holy that sinners in his presence break out into tumors. We see the humor in the systematic breakdown of the idol to Dagon, but fail to carry forward the absolute power and authority of God inherent in that experience. We want God for the same reason the Israelites and the Philistines wanted him in this narrative. Bow the knee, pray the prayer, get baptized, enjoy the idea that we have insurance against hell and can now do whatever we darn well please. We don't prioritize God over our own idea of what will be best. In the coming weeks, there's going to be some conversations, and I think we'll all be part of them, but there's going to be some conversations about the block parties we just had. 
Jonathan and I have talked a little bit. There's like some clear things that could be done better, better communication, holes in the way we did it, issues in the system, all these things we need to deal with. But I tell you right now, the number one failure was how few of our own people were present at those block parties. And again, that is not to say that everybody needs to be at everything we do every time. But when I take those block parties and I combine that and match that with a lack of, uh, with uh, no names on our sign-up sheets in the back, uh, the fact that we can't, we could fill the room, but we can't get 10 people here, more than 10 people here at a time. Um, we changed small group based on a consensus of people, and then it immediately died. Um, and then I look at my own heart and the things I just shared with you, and I realize that we, just like the Israelites, just like the Philistines, have this great head knowledge of who God is, but a failure to prioritize based on that knowledge. And then we have the audacity to ask him to bless our efforts. And that feels pretty bleak. But all is not lost. This is not a hopeless thing. This is not a hopeless predicament. There are good things happening here through this church. Movement is slow. There have been some stallouts, some frustrations, some tears. But if we really look at where we are today versus where we were two years ago, people coming, people showing up, opportunities presenting themselves in the community to minister, well, we can see this played out really well. So the good news here from this narrative, in light of this tendency and propensity we have to not prioritize God, the good news is that God will not be held captive, not to his enemies and not to his people. In today's terms, we often would say the gospel will go out and it will not come back void. The question for us is, where will we be standing when it does? I've shown the similarity in the sinful attitudes of the Israelites and the Philistines, but at the end of the story, the two groups become distinct again. The Philistines stand on one side, obstinate, watching a couple of milk cows wander across the countryside, but really making a straight line back to Israel. And seeing that against all odds, God is still in control, the Philistines continue to reject him in favor of their false gods. And then you have the Israelites who rejoice that God has once again favored them with his presence. We know that the Israelites are going to continue to fail. They're going to fail time and time again. This will not be the last time they find themselves outside God's will and paying the price for it. And like them, we have all been there. It's just a matter of which side of the field we're going to be on. The side that sees God's power and rejects it, that continues to put personal priorities above God, or the side that even when we fail, we continue to seek him. The side that laments when they are far from God and rejoices when he comes near. It's a pretty practical application for us. We tend to put other matters before God simply because our culture tells us we should. This is definitely more about, more than showing up on a Sunday or for a special event. Those are just really nice, clean examples that we can throw out. But I have this game I play. It's almost a parlor trick where you can name any Broadway musical and I can sing almost the entire score to it. 
but I struggle to keep scripture references in my head um, or keep a regular quiet time. And it's really convenient to say, well, I have PTSD and numbers are hard for me, but it doesn't stop me knowing the whole score to Les Miserables. I came across this quote from A.W. Tozer this week. Whatever keeps me from my Bible is my enemy, no matter how harmless it appears to be. And that felt very appropriate to this topic. It's so easy and so socially acceptable to underestimate the danger in front of us, to shake its hand and invite it in. It doesn't really matter what specific thing it is that is getting between us and God. It is the enemy and should be treated as such, not prioritized over what God has commanded us in Scripture. So do we prioritize prayer, time spent in God's word? Do we prioritize service to others in evangelism and discipleship? Do we prioritize fellowship with the saints? I don't. Not naturally. Not without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which usually sounds a lot like my wife. That's not heresy, that's a joke. So, I'm not saying that any of that is easy. It goes counter to culture. It goes counter to society. It will alienate people. It removes opportunities that look really good in the moment, but it opens up other opportunities with eternal significance. Maybe not the opportunities we wanted or expected, but opportunities that we can confidently embrace as what might be called divine appointments. So the call this morning is really no different than what Jonathan preached last week. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke with them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Again, a reminder of the authority of Christ. And in light of this knowledge, we should be prone to obey rather than seek our own interests. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. The call to evangelize and to disciple and teach is a call to prepare, to pray and study scripture and to act upon the truth contained in scripture, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to place our priorities in subjugation to things above, making Christ the commander of our efforts rather than a trophy to be displayed as some token of our own efforts. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ leaves the disciples and us with the promise. Just as the ark was returned to Israel in these early verses of 1 Samuel, Christ will never leave or forsake us. There is hope when we stumble. There is mercy when we fail to put God first. Take heart, take up your cross, and continue to follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are constant and unchanging, that you keep your promises. Lord, may we never try to prioritize ourselves over your commands, and may we know the mercy and love you have for us when we fail. I pray for each of us and for the life and future of your church in Leeds, South Dakota, Lord, that we would be emissaries of Christ, preaching all of Christ for all of Lead. Father, convict us where we need conviction and comfort us where we need comfort, that we may draw closer to you as you lead us into the field. Keep us from the ever-persistent temptation to do things our way or to deviate from what you've commanded us. May we let, never lose sight of your glory and power and realize that all we do is done unto your glory alone. Thank you for using us, broken as we are, for the eternal work of your kingdom. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, thank you, Aaliyah. <laughs>